Hello and welcome to Tops 10, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer engineer, and I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college and the host of Tops 10. Today I have with me probably our most special guest, my predecessor, the founding dean of the College of Media and Communication, Jerry Hudson. Uh, Jerry Hudson has had a long and storied career in media and communication, administration, and teaching and research. You're co-author of 50 papers, six book chapters, 28 other publications, and many refereed and, and popular as well. Now, you had a lot of experience as well, Jerry. You were in commercial broadcasting. So did, were you on air? I was a, a rock and roll disc jockey for several years. That's, That's what right. I thought I was going to be for the rest of my life. And I found out there wasn't very much money in it. So I went into advertising sales and television. So when, when you were a disc jockey, this was what era? Oh, uh, 60 through 72. So, I mean, for some pretty good times for music. Yeah, yeah a lot do, you, of do you remember the first time you introduced a record which might be, you know, legend today? I mean, like, and now there's this new group called The Beatles, and here's their, you know, I want to hold your hand. Do you, do, 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 oh, it was, was there a moment like that? Then. It yeah. was long before then. I think uh, I still have the first tape I ever made, but it was not, um, it was not an air check. It was uh, just in the studio, and it, it's, it was awful. It was just absolutely pathetic. Um, I grew up in East Texas, so I had a tremendously bad East Texas accent, uh, but it was... Um, Ring of Fire that Johnny Cash oh, wow. uh, recorded, but that was not one of my favorite songs. But so the station was uh, country music, or no? It was it was popular. a at that during that time it was a, um, a rock and roll station. Uh, we tried to emulate. There was a, a, a. I grew up in deep East Texas and uh, born in Carthage and and grew up in Center, which is about uh, oh. 15 miles from Louisiana. So I grew up listening to uh, WNOE in New Orleans and uh, KWEL in Shreveport. And so those were the stations that I, I like to listen to. Uh, sometimes we, we could hear Wolfman Jack at XERF. And, and so th those were the, uh, the top disc jockeys that we tried to emulate and, and copy a lot. So we had a small, it was a small daytime station. Um, in center, and we uh, we played rock and roll music. For people of my generation, the stereotype of what a disc jockey looked like, and did, and and said was the the TV show WKRP in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. where the disc jockey would would be sitting in a studio and physically put a a vinyl record on a turntable, and now let's listen to. Yeah, uh, was that yeah. pretty much the logistics of the time? And uh, I, I remember uh, growing up in high school, they used to bring some the athletes in and interview us on on the radio and there's a guy named jack bell and they had a, a large uh, stand-up console and an old collins uh, control board and they had reel-to-reel -reel tapes they had four reel-to-reel -reel tape machines that they played commercials on so they were all on a pegboard about six to eight feet behind the console so jack would drag the the microphone similar to this one but it was a, the old uh, ribbon microphone and pull it back and take a reel-to-reel -reel tape cue it up 
while he was talking to us and then play the commercial on the reel-to-reel tape and I sat with amazement saying man that is that that is talent that's what I want to do so you remember the very first song Ring of Fire that you mm-hmm. in- introduced mm-hmm. and they was on, not on the air but not on the air yeah, yeah. do you remember what your first uh, set on the air was about I don't I don't but it, but they were contemporary songs they were rock and roll songs that uh, uh, I guess Elvis Presley uh, little Richard uh, the Platters, uh, Johnny Mathis, all of those. Had the singers. top forty format come in at that yeah. time? Yeah, I know Gordon McClendon is uh, you know started in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a whole connection to him, and the whole, he invented the top forty format. So were you playing? Were you sort of rotating? Well, he and a guy named Stars um, were responsible for the top forty, and there's always been a debate about who created it. But uh, I think Gordon was the one who coined the phrase, uh, and I think he he uh, went around a jukebox. Uh, and counted the number of times a record had been played and found that there were 40 records mostly that people wanted to hear. And So he said, if, if they play that on jukeboxes, then we'll play it on the radio. Now it's assumed that disc jockeys, whatever are left of them, don't have a lot of volition about what they play. But at that time, did you, did you just get a list and you were told to play this, or did you have some choice on your own? We had, um, at that time, there were not that many women uh, singers, artists. And so we had a rotation that, um, let's say, the top 10 or the top 40 that we had, and then we had classic records that we could play. So we had a sheet. In this hour, uh, you were supposed to pay, play one of the top 10, and then you had a choice of one of the top 40 that you had, and then you had to play a female artist. Uh, and then a classic artist, and so it rotated, and it depended also on the speed. Uh, so some were uh, classified as one, two, three, and four. One would be really fast, four would be really slow, like Johnny Mathis and the Platters probably would be a four, so that you didn't have uh, a lot of fast songs back-to-back or a lot of slow songs back-to-back. Wow, there's a lot of thought into the sort of yeah. totality of it. Was there, at that time was there the idea of like the morning drive or like segments of the day where yeah. people had a, maybe a different expectation of what kind of music? Exactly, uh, faster after three thirty when school was out, uh, when the kids got out of school. But I remember um, I worked for one uh, radio station, and they had what was called the Drake format, and the Drake format was uh, there was never supposed to be any talking uh, without music behind uh, the the disc jockey. So you outroed the record and you introed the record over music and then there were musical jingles and things. So just me sitting talking was not allowed. And uh, one of the radio stations I worked for in Amarillo was called Kicks. And we had to say, it was K-I-X-Z. So you had to say Kicks, K-I-X-Z, Kicks Country, a certain number of times an hour. So you got where everything was kicks or K-I-X-Z. And um, it was obviously uh, to promote uh, ratings so that people, if you listen for an hour. Uh, so uh, the, the man who was responsible for the national chain would come in and record you at night 
No, or he would record you during the day. He would spend two days there recording everybody, and he would come in and say, well, now, look, uh, last night between uh, 7 and 8 o'clock, you only had 10 KIXZs, and you were supposed to have 13. So you're going to have to improve on that a little bit. It was a complicated job. Yeah, it was. I think it prepared you for university administration. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jerry, a a lot of our guests have talked about the, the first major musical experiences they had were in church. And you told us that Amazing Grace, which is a song we've heard before on this show, was the first solo song I sang in church at the age of 11. So (laughs) were you a choir boy? No, no. I was in a church, uh, a Nazarene church, and uh, it was a very small church in Carthage. And we had uh, three or four young people who liked to sing, so I think the pastor wanted us to to participate. And... uh, he had two or three of us sing songs uh, each week, and or one, one a week. So I was selected uh, the first time. I was very nervous. And then after about halfway through the song, I said, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a preacher. My mother wanted me to be a preacher. And uh, my son has since then said, well, she got her wish. I think I've heard a sermon from you for the first every day for the first 21 years of my life. And I know that that's used a lot in, in funerals. But uh, I really like that song because it was slow, and you could have a lot of opportunities to, to use your vocal talents there. Music was related to your first thoughts about a career. Did, did you ever toy with the idea of becoming a preacher, or was it more your, your parents' thoughts? My mother wanted me to be a preacher, but um, 
I I thought at one time that that would be a cool thing to do when you're 10, 11. You get all the attention. And I guess I had visions of being, you know, a person who could speak and and uh, people would listen to you. And then I had children. I found out that uh, they didn't listen to you at all. And faculty. No. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> true. No. Uh, well, Jerry, you've, you've spent a career where people have listened to you uh, uh, quite a bit. Did you pick, in, in your family, how many kids? Three. And you were... I was the youngest. And your parents, did they, uh, would your mother work outside the home, or was your, was your father? We were, we were uh, unbelievably poor. Uh, we lived about three miles outside of Carthage, which was the country at that time. And uh, I, I now see where there were times in the latter 1800s where there was electricity in uh, the major metropolitan areas. And there, there was electricity in, in Carthage, but REA had not come to our part of the, the, the country or the county. So there was a period of time where we had no electricity. So my mother did not work outside the house. Um, she was a homemaker and, and did a lot of... Uh, and that was incredibly yeah. laborious. T- yeah. And, yes, and, that, so we're talking you know, about like hand-washing yeah. clothes on the, yeah. the board? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. But... Everybody else did it, so yeah. it was uh, just we never wanted for food. You know, we were never hungry. But uh, was we your just father didn't farming? Or you... My father farmed, yeah. and he worked for the county. What kind of crops? Uh, we grew some cotton and um, some vegetables, but uh, corn and cotton were the the two major. So you you also subsisted. You also ate what yeah. you what you grew, and, yeah. and you had some animals too. Or some we stock? had some cows and pigs and things like that. Did you ever think about farming as a no, career? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to pick cotton once, and uh, I remember I was five or six years old, and you got uh, ten cents a pound for uh, for picking, and of uh, ten ten cents fifty pounds, and uh, cotton bolts will prick your fingers and make it's them like bleed. razor wire. Yeah. So, so I, I I lasted yeah. about an hour, and I said, mm, I don't I don't think I want to do this. I want to go play. Be a preacher, man. And be or, a preacher. Or, or, yeah. Your next song is uh, you, you said all Johnny Mathis songs, but specifically the Twelfth of Never, and this is related to your first love. Well, I think when you're in junior high school and high school. And, and this was an interesting uh, exercise. If somebody asked me to pick 10 of my favorite songs tomorrow, probably none of these would be on there uh, that I've listed. Uh, some of them were um, benchmarks of uh, things in your life, you know, your first date, your first kiss, your first love. And uh, I think when you're in junior high school and high school, there, there are things that you remember uh, because you've just discovered girls or you've just discovered boys. So there is this opportunity to take the lyrics of songs and and kind of relate that to a situation. So um, I think the, the my first, what I call love, would be uh, the 12th of never. Uh, when I've said, oh, this is, I love you to the 12th of, of never, you know, and it was supposed to impress the girl. And so uh, Did it? most of these songs are... Was it are, very impressive to her? Um, I don't know. I, I can't remember. That was... It was uh, 60 years ago, so I don't know. Uh, did you have uh, access to music in your home? Did you have a record player? Or? Yeah, we did, 78 RPMs. It was an old crank-up Victrola, uh, but we also had a piano. I took piano lessons till I was eight or nine, and then um, 
I was made fun of by other guys in school. You're taking piano lessons, and so it wasn't a manly. No, it wasn't a manly thing. 1960 Carthage. No, so well, that would have been 1950, 51. So I I dropped that pretty quickly, but I could still play boogie woogie. Well, I I think the whole point about impressing girls, though, didn't they get that part about playing music? To I mean, well, I was that was when I was seven, eight, nine. So I didn't care about girls then. I just wanted to play music. You ask how much I need you, must I explain? I need you, oh my darling, like roses need rain. You ask how long I love you. song is Ray Charles, I Can't Stop Loving You, uh, 1962, and you say this is one of the first long songs that, that gave disc jockeys the opportunity to go to the bathroom, which I guess was a pretty significant thing since yeah. you were on the air. How many, how many hours would you be on the air, like on duty? Uh, anywhere from four to six, depending on... So uh, a particular If you had the morning slot, show, it yeah. would be from six to ten o'clock, something yeah. like that. And then uh, ten to two, and then two to six, six to midnight. Now, you started at the radio station at what age? Uh, I guess I was uh, about 19 years old. So this was before college? or? or? Yeah. I didn't go back to college. I, I went to a junior college for one year, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't get a degree till I was 30. So I went out, and I was going to be a rock and roll disc jockey and work in Chicago and New York and L.A. And be famous. Well, I, I got to Albuquerque as far yeah. as west as I got. So when you were in the station, you, you did have choices about which songs you played. 
did you get requests from listeners as well? You did it. If, if you were a disc jockey at night, you did. And um, I think in small communities, uh, it's important to, to get people involved. You want to get them listening, um, especially secretaries who work in the office. You want the radio to play. If the radio is playing, then you have more opportunities for people to hear contests and things going on to increase your your share of audience. And so, uh, we, yeah, we, we did honor some requests, uh, especially f- during day when secretaries called in. And, but I, I never participated in a dedication. You know, uh, such and such called in and want to dedicate this song. I, Not so. even to a girl that you were trying no, to no. date? No. <laughs> Sally, this one's for you? No. No. Okay. No. I think um, most of the songs then were like two minutes long, so you know, it was, it was there, most of the songs were very, very short. During my period of time, 45 RPMs were the, the uh, main source of music that we had. But on the um, Ray Charles song, that was four minutes long, and so that really gave you a chance to go to the, to the restroom, and, and if somebody was in the studio, you could talk to them for a little bit longer time than than just two minutes because you were constantly trying to answer the phone and play commercials, get ready for the next record. And two minutes is not very long. Probably contributed to uh, its longevity and popularity than disc jockeys yeah. to say, okay, we've got well, finally we got a song where we can take a bathroom break. That's great. But uh, Ray Charles, that song was recorded a, a lot. Uh, it was on the flip side of a, a Don Gibson song, and so Ray Charles recorded it. And when I played it, it was on an album. It was not a single at that time. It was an album. Uh, Ray Charles sings country and western. Born to Lose was also on that album. So th- th- those were good songs. I like those. to say So I'll just live my life In dreams of yesterday Those happy hours That we once knew
So it sounds like from at least age 11, you were in the communications business. Were there any early lessons that you learned about the popularity of music or even, you know, preaching that, that you've carried with you? I mean, you obviously eventually went back to college and you chose to study communications mm -hmm. and your entire career has been within media and communications. Are, are there uh, some early observations you made young in the business about the power of communications and media? I think sometimes we give um, media too much credit. I read an article this morning about the influence of the rioting that media, the coverage of media. If that's, uh, if, if that's the case, if media are that influential, then maybe we should televise executions and force children to watch it so that they would see that, you know, I'm, I'm, that's tongue-in-cheek. I'm, I'm not really suggesting do that. But I think, I think we sometimes give too much credit to the influence of media. I know growing up, the newspapers were quite influential in endorsing uh, political candidates. I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we make our own choices. But uh, I do think it, it, media are avenues by which we uh, understand things and we fit it in our own personalities and our own characters and uh, motivations. But I'm not so sure that we just live on the edge of, well, let's see what media have to say. And there are so many sources now that are different from your opinion and my opinion, so we can select which opinions we want. One of your next songs is uh, singers is Stevie Wonder. Fingertips two. Fingertips. Fingertips two. Fingertips two. You know that's interesting. I didn't know that until after that song became very popular, and I said, "What? Uh, what is Fingertips one? You know, it's on the other side. Why don't we play that?" Yeah. And actually, uh, Fingertips two was uh, one of the first songs recorded live. That it was the first song recorded live that became a number one hit. And Fingertips two was actually an encore. Stevie had played uh, in Chicago, and he had already left the stage, and they brought him back. And um, they were there was a band already trying to set up. So you'll hear the bass player when they start Fingertips Part 2. He says, what key, what key? So he just filled in in the bass for Fingertips Part 2. So a lot of that was just ad-libbed, you know, uh, that, that he had. But uh, the thing that, that I remember about that was I, I did like the music. Uh, I did like the fast pace. And um, it was kind of wild. And as I said, it was the first song that was recorded live that became a number one hit. But I was playing that the day uh, John Kennedy was shot. And You were uh, in the studio. I was the in the studio in 63. That was on a Friday. How did you get the news? Was, was there it was, a teletype? We had UPI. Yeah. And there was used a, to be a bell. That the, would, uh, yeah. For our younger listeners, this is essentially a, a machine that, that typed out uh, electronically. Yeah, like an old in. typewriter yeah. that had folded paper, big boxes of folded paper. Yeah. And, and if there was something, a bulletin or something that was important, the bell would ring. And the bell was just ringing, ringing, ringing. And so I went back and, and looked. And the first, if I recall correctly, I think the first thing that came across, it said, shots fired at the president or the president has been shot. Just very simple. And I said, this has got to be a joke. It's a joke. And so the bell kept ringing. And finally... Now, Carthage is how far from Dallas? Well, I was in Henderson. Oh, Henderson I was working yeah. in yeah. Henderson at that time. Henderson, uh, I'm going to say it's about 220 miles from Dallas. So not that far. 
far in Texas distance, no. I, I mm-hmm. guess. It, were you, you were aware the president was in Texas. Yeah. So it was already, it was yeah, a news was, story there. You saw the, was the first reports. I think that that was the first report mm-hmm. the president shot. And then, yeah. of course, the, the terrible news came. Were you, so were you reading this on air as it came in? Well, I did. Uh, after I wanted to double check. And so there was somebody else in the, in the station. And I said, keep checking on this to make sure. And then I called the program director and said uh, he had already seen it on television. So he said, uh, you need to get some, some slow music, some instrumental music, some, any, any, any record that you can find that has slow instruments music to it so we that's what we did we began playing so we didn't play any rock and roll music at all for six or seven days so I got off at six o'clock I was working the afternoon shift at that time so I got off at six o'clock and I had Saturday off and I came back to work at noon on Sunday and then you know Lee Harvey Oswald was shot at 1230 and so I'm saying my gosh you know the world is coming apart and uh, so we didn't we didn't get to play any rock and roll music for more than a week it was a uh, pretty solemn and it was a very uh, traumatic era Take a, a quite a shift in uh, style of music next to the Rolling Stones. I guess we're moving into a different era. Uh, of the, the, a lot of times when people talk about the '60s, the, those I mean, I was born in the '60s, but those who live in the '60s talk that you know the the early '60s were really the continuation of the '50s, and this, what we think of the '60s, the sort of riot, revolt, revolution, really didn't begin until the mid '60s. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but the Rolling Stones were certainly indicative of, of a change in music uh, of the time. Rolling Stones can't get no satisfaction, and you say, "I love the sound of this song and the hard rock tempo." What, was this where you were beginning to see that there were songs that were changing rock and roll from maybe the the '50s format? You know, I, I listed uh, a couple of other genres of music that I, I really grew up liking and uh, 
the Southern blues. Having said that I lived in the country, um, I had very few people to play with. Uh, I had two African-American kids who lived near us that I played with more than anything and anyone. Uh, and then a new kid moved into the community, so there were five or six of us. We, we had a, a, an African-American family or black family that lived uh, near us that I used to spend a lot of time at their house. And uh, so on Wednesday evenings, I went to uh, church with him, and he was a preacher. So Wednesday nights, uh, I found a different style of music uh, without a piano. They had no piano, a different type of uh, environment uh, in the black uh, religious church than, than I found in my church. And um, I really enjoyed it. So the music was uh, the same music that we sang in our church, but it had far more emotion, and people got well, so more it was the involved. Same songs, in it. yeah, but, but there uh, was more audience participation, yeah, maybe greater tempo, little little yeah. dancing going on, and uh, um, you know, just really an emotional type of uh, environment. And so I grew up uh, listening to to black music, or African American music, Bobby Blue Bland, John Lee. Hooker, Jimmy Reed, and so those those songs were were very uh, important to me. Um, the Stones credit Jimmy Reed as being an influence on them, much as the Beatles have Buddy Holly as being an influence on on some of their uh, their songs. So uh, it was uh, if you listen to the Stones, it's um, it's it's really a uh, a type of music that is the blues, the hard blues. The Animals also uh, took some Southern blues and added rock and roll to it. Uh, but it's it's that soul music that the Stones had with the hard rock to it that that I liked. I can't get no is like a Rolling Stone from Bob Dylan, uh, a longer song. And of course, Dylan, it's, it's hard to separate Dylan from the 60s because, the, of course, some of the changes he made from being a sort of acoustic folk singer to being a rock and roll singer with an electric guitar sort of indicated a sort of change in the culture as well, right? Mm-hmm. He was, he, you know, he wrote folk music, actually, and he put a, a contemporary beat to it and a sound to it but he he really had messages that he wanted to people to listen to the lyrics and it may have taken him two or three 
at times to hear the song before you really began to hear the message that he had in the lyrics. But uh, I, I really liked his music. He was different from anything that, that we had heard during that era of 63, 64. Once upon a time you dressed so fine Threw the bumps of dime in your prime Then you People call, say beware doll You're bound to fall, you thought they were all I'm kidding you You used to laugh about Everybody that was hanging out so loud Now you don't seem so proud About having to be scrounging Your next But you know you only used to get juiced in it Nobody's ever taught you how to live out on the street And now you're gonna have to get used to it You say you never compromise With a mystery tramp But now you realize He's not selling it as you stare into the vacuum of his eyes And say, do you want to make a deal? next song is The Beatles, another icon of the 60s and, and 70s, Hey Jude, 7 minutes and 11 seconds. Love the length, but also best the sound and the lyrics. I guess you introduced The Beatles to your listeners, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the early Beatles songs I just didn't really get into. I know it, they were very popular, but if you compare the Stones sound with a lot of a lot of noise and up tempo. The Beatles were kind of thin. You know, they they were yeah yeah yeah. You know that type of song. It, it was it actually was very hard to predict what they would become. These great songwriters and uh, from I want to hold your hand and she loves you. Yeah yeah yeah. I mean they easily could have disappeared and been. Yeah. You know the Dave Clark Five or <laughs> or something. Uh, but if you if you listen to their songs, all of them. There, what's so unique about the Beatles, I think, is that none of them sound alike. 
they're all different. Um, the, but the, I enjoyed their later music, uh, their latter music, than, than uh, some of the early early songs that they had. I, I think uh, Hey Jude was uh, starts out with you know kind of a, a slow tempo, and and I like Paul's voice, and so uh, and then it it gets pretty wild at the end. So I like that. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Hey Jude, don't be afraid you were made to go out and get her the minute you let her under your skin then you begin to make it better and anytime you feel the pain So you did take a job teaching? I did at, at uh, Lamar University. I went to Lamar University and taught there until I came here. What was your first impression of Texas Tech? What uh, year was this? That was in the seven. Uh, it was in '78. So it was. So uh, Lubbock was a much smaller town then. I think the enrollment here at that time was 19,000, and uh, we taught um, four courses every semester with the labs. I remember first time I met Dr. Ross, we went to um, a conference in Austin. And when Billy I, Ross, who was director of the School of Journalism mm-hmm, at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, cr- actually is uh, responsible for creating the entire academic program. Uh, he was in the College of Business, and they kicked advertising out of business. And so that's when they formed the Department of Mass Communication in 1970. But coming from Lamar to, to Tech, I thought, okay, I'm now in big time. And uh, the first conference we went to was in Austin. Dr. Ross took five of us in his car, three in the back seat, and we we rented two rooms uh, for five of us to sleep in. I slept on a rollaway cot, and he ordered hamburgers for us to eat in the room. So my image of big time changed pretty quickly. But uh, Dr. Ross was uh, a person who... Uh, wanted to make sure that we participated, and he was building a, a good program. And he wanted us to share in, in some of the, the things that he felt were important to us to, to show what we were doing to other coll- with our program to other colleges and universities. So it was important that we, we were visible during that period of time. Boy, there, there was just no money whatsoever. And so I thought, well, big time 
is at a big-time school, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's big time. <laughs> Were you making more money as a disc jockey or as a professor? Uh, slightly more as a professor. Uh, by that time, when I went into teaching, I was in television, so I was doing sports and radio. I was doing television and radio, and uh, the joke was that I had like, I don't know if you remember in Living Color about the the guys that said, I got five jobs, man. I got, you know, the... the uh, Oh, the Jamaicans. Yeah, the Jamaicans. Did, 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 I got yeah. 46 jobs. And so I had uh, I had a, a weekend gig with uh, the sports uh, and television, and then I did rock and roll music during the week. And, and then at 1 o'clock uh, every night I went down to the Fox Theater and washed out the Fox Theater with uh, soap and water and Coke stuff on the floor. So uh, two of us went down and cleaned out the Fox Theater. So at least there wasn't a janitorial aspect to, to being a professor, or was there? No, this was when I was in, in going to college and yeah. working in, in Amarillo. And then when I went to uh, when I went to Lamar, I had the same teaching load as when I came here, four, four courses every semester. Jimmy Reed, Big Boss Man. You know, the, the, the last three or four songs that our uh, artists are, are mostly uh, artists that, as I said, reflected the, the Southern blues rock uh, types of, of music. Um, so none of them, none of the songs were instrumental in being a top ten as much as the artists were. Jimmy Reed was a, a guy who played a harmonica, had a harmonica uh, braced around his, his neck, and he had a, a, a foot pedal that he had a drum that he would tap with, and then he had his guitar. And uh, so he sang by himself. One man mostly, band. One man band. Uh, a very talented guy. Uh, he developed epilepsy in 1957 and drove him to uh, drink a lot, and also he got on cocaine. But I saw him in 1975. I always wanted to see him. And I saw him in 75 in Dallas in a small nightclub, and his wife had to sit beside him sometimes and remind him of some of the lyrics. But he, he would get—he didn't perform the songs as he did on record, he would maybe forget and repeat some of the same lyrics over and over. But the again. audience didn't mind. No, and no. He, he was very talented, but it was was sad to see him in his uh, latter years of his life because he, he was so talented. As I said, the, the Stones took a lot of his song, Hey Boss Man, Baby What You Want Me To Do, Bright Lights, Big City, and uh, it was just a, a very slow-paced song that, that you could follow and had really good good lyrics and good beat to it. Hey, boss man, can't you hear me when I call? Hey, boss man, can't you hear me when I call? Waking around the bar I want a little rain of water But you won't let Jimmy start Big boy Can't you hear me when I call Well, you ain't so big 
get me on bowling Why not I treat me right Wake hard in the daytime Rifties at night, big boss man Can't you hear me when I call Well, you next singer and song is Chuck Willis, C.C. Ryder. Chuck Willis uh, died when he was 30. He had stomach surgery, had ulcers, but during the short period of time. And he knew that uh, he was going to die when he recorded uh, Hang Up My Rock and Roll Shoes. But um, during the 50s and the early 60s, uh, the saxophone was a major instrument that, that was played. You may remember... Uh, Many of the platters and some of the groups had saxophone players in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, but he really did emphasize the, the, uh, the saxophone. So what am I living for? Uh, the Stroll, C.C. Uh, Ryder. C.C. Ryder was actually a song that was written in 1924. And it was basically a, a song that... Um, a guy had fallen in love with a, a woman who was a prostitute, and so they referred to them as easy riders uh, during that era, and so they changed it to CC Rider. So if you listen to the songs, uh, the lyrics of that song, it's CC Rider. See what you've done, heartbroken. You've broken my heart. Uh, but unless you knew that about the song, um, it just sounds like the guy was jilted that he fell in love with somebody and she kicked him out and and he was still wandering around what he what he was going to do. So that was in the fifties also. So you had the songs that made you fall in love and that you used, and then you know romances and in, in high school last couple of months and then you move on to somebody else and uh, or you think you're in love again so then uh, for the short period of time you say oh i'm heartbroken i never be the same so that that song was there
Your final song, Bobby Bland, Two Steps from the Blues. Well, that was uh, an album. He had uh, Don't Cry No More, St. James Infirmary, Cry, 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 I Pity the Fool. That guy was so talented uh, with with blues like almost any blues singer in the South knew who Bobby Blue Bland was. And uh, or, or at that time, he, he lived in Memphis and played a lot on Beale Street. And that's where the... The blues. It's a different type of blues, but a lot of gospel uh, in some of his background. One month from the day I first met you, your promises proved to be untrue. So step by step, I've been a I'm just two steps from the blue The reason we didn't get along Was telegrams and telephones One bring bad news The other rendezvous that keeps me two steps from the blue. Here's a chance to be loved or be lonely. My heart awaits your call. I know it's better to have loved lost and to never Let's try to make amends And if it should fail Let's try and try again Oh, it makes no difference What you say or do I'm so forgiving I'm so forgiving and I can't go on living two steps from the blue. Now, Jerry, I, I noticed a sort of theme that you're putting here that you keep mentioning the blues, but you're known as an incredibly upbeat, optimistic person. Is, is, is there a relationship between the kind of music you listen to and, and your attitude towards your job and, and life? Because it almost seems like it's contrary. No, I, I, I just like that type of music, but my mother was the one who really instilled in me that I could I could do anything I wanted to do. And uh, I was... Um, I played a lot of sports in high school, in, in a small school, you know, and I looked at the skill my son had, and he was three times the athlete that I was, but 
he grew up here in a, in a major market. So I thought it was important for you to participate. I still think it's important for kids to participate in school and whatever they want to do. So it developed this this uh, success that that you you can be successful. And uh, so I guess if if anything, if that's that's where I get my motivation that that you can. I, I played all four sports, and you were expected to play all four sports. When you're in high school in a small, you know, New Deal and Abernathy and and Leveland, some of those places that you're you see the same kids playing all of the sports. wasn't necessarily good at all of them, but uh, I enjoyed it. So, but the blues, uh, I just love the blues. And I want to mention one one song. My my, my one of the song that I really have a relationship with and that was a song that Ann Murray had uh, Save This Dance for me and it's kind of the answer to Save This Last Dance for me when my wife and I were dating uh, she liked that song and so we decided that she decided that that was her song and so I put that in there and that is one of my favorite songs well we'll make that year 11 Jerry you can okay. break any rule you want this is your your college so uh, we'll make we'll, we'll we'll break our only 10 rule for you and put that as number 11 Jerry you know I want to say that so I've been Dean now for about a year and a half at the time of this uh, recording and I've met hundreds sat down with hundreds of alumni and so all of them, of course, remember you in some fashion. and But I think they also remember the spirit and the culture that you helped build here. I've heard from so many alumni about how the Texas Tech student is recognized in the workplace as being a different sort of creature, that there's a certain work ethic, a roll up your sleeves, uh, you know, like, you may not think I'm the best, but I'm going to prove it to you. And employers love that, even if they're, you know, UT Austin grads or SMU people the, themselves. And I and I think that certainly comes from the people who just ha- who happen to matriculate at Texas Tech. It comes from the faculty, but culture also comes from the top. And, and your 30-plus years of leadership have contributed to making thousands and thousands of people's lives uh, better. So, you know, we have the thanks of a grateful nation for all the time that you've spent building this wonderful institution. Well, thank you. You're very kind. I have to admit that uh, I had a, a predecessor who had the same type of relationship with his students and that type of attitude, that type of recognition among students uh, and their success was developed long before I got here. And I think Billy Ross is the one that started that, his faculty that he had that initially uh, uh, developed the program. So they were eight years old when I when I came here. Billy was such a, you talk, you talk about somebody that's positive and somebody who uh, is motivated to succeed, and uh, that's Billy Ross. So I had a, a great mentor. We happened to have some great faculty who also had the same type of uh, motivation to make sure students were preparing themselves for careers and do whatever you need to do to, to be successful. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Jerry Hudson. And uh, we will sign out listening to Anne Murray. Together, it feels so right. Could I have this dance for the rest?